Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of the New Books and Finance podcast, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest Mihir Desai, uh, the author of The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return. Professor Desai is a joint appointment uh, of the Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School, and he uh, is, in this book, does something which I think is really wonderful and interesting, which is an, an effort to prevent finance, not, not as a matter of secret formulas that can be perceived as stripping people of their money or Wall Street hijinks or incomprehensible graduate school algorithms and spreadsheets, but uh, seen as everyday decisions uh, through the prism of uh, the humanities as a way of understanding and navigating life uh, for all. Uh, The wisdom of finance, in my opinion, the book bridges the gap uh, between what are often assumed to be two alien worlds, uh, unable to communicate or understand one another. And as a historian of the, in the humanities who happened to end up in finance, uh, I, in particular, I'm very sympathetic to this cause. Uh, welcome, Mahir Desai. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's great, it's great to be here. Uh, my pleasure. Let's start with a, a, a few of the most important concepts that you bring up uh, in, in your book. And you, you use the book to you know, hit four or five of the key uh, finance constructs. So one of the early ones is is caught in a nice phrase where the individual says in a uh, one of the pages that we are all an insurance company. A life is an insurance company. Uh, one of the characters uh, as an intro into the topic of risk and probability, uh, which is a central construct of modern finance. Could you elaborate uh, on that notion? Sure. You know, that chapter and that idea is, I think, representative of the book, which, as you mentioned, is an effort to demystify and, and rehabilitate finance by connecting the big ideas of finance to philosophy, literature, and history. So in that particular chapter and that particular quote, which is, you know, we are all insurance companies, I like that quote a lot because it connects two worlds that people just would never connect, right? So most people think insurance is boring and uh, very dry and not connected to their humanity at all. And in that chapter, I really try to suggest that they're you know deeply connected. And to do that, um, there's a couple of stories in there that are worth uh, just visiting quickly. And then I'll, I'll talk to you about the person who said, uh, we are all insurance companies. The chapter begins with uh, a story from Dashiell Hammett um, which is in fact all about insurance. It's from the Maltese Falcon, but actually has some really big insurance ideas in it. And then I tell the story of this philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce, who's a really you know, remarkable man. He's the kind of uh, uh, intellect that we don't see anymore. He was a um, he was geographer. He was a, a semiotician. He was a philosopher. He was the founder of uh, the most American school of philosophy, which is pragmatism. And the story goes that he was uh, a little bit down on his luck, And he had been kind of cast out of the academy for behaving badly. And William James, another famous American philosopher, um, called him and said, sorry, didn't call him, wrote to him and said, you should come back uh, to Harvard and actually give a talk about your philosophy. And people were suspicious because he had been a little bit of a drunk and a little bit down on his luck. And so uh, Charles Peirce shows up 
And in his first lecture, he you know goes on to propound that we are all insurance companies. And he actually uses some calculus to derive the first order conditions for pricing insurance contracts, which does not go over well. <laughs> and many people in the room think he's drunk, actually. He was getting to, though, a deep truth, which is we are all insurance companies. And what he meant, of course, is that um, the key to life is not introspection, but it is to gain experience. And that is the essence of pragmatism. And so what he was getting at was this idea that in order to live a full life, you have to do what insurance companies do, which is you have to go out and experience the world. And that experience will teach you about the way the world works, the probabilities by which um, events happen. And that's the only way in some ways to live, which is to actually go out and experience the world. It's like a very American uh, way of thinking about philosophy. No navel gazing, no introspection, but just experience the world. A little bit of the Nike, just do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so um, it's, it was a really fun way to kind of connect two worlds. And in that chapter, I also use Wallace Stevens, who is a great American poet, um, maybe the best of the last century. But me, many people don't know he was also an insurance company executive. And he spent his whole career um, in insurance. And, you know, all his fellow poets kind of made fun of him because they thought it was very bourgeois and kind of nerdy to do. But he understood that he was working at the Hartford and at night he was writing poetry and people around him thought he was crazy, but he understood that those two worlds were really deeply connected, that they were both for him ways of making sense of the chaos of the world. So I really wanted in that chapter to kind of give this intuition of insurance, which is not about, you know, stochastic calculus or something very dry, but you know, about the fundamental problem of life, which is confronting uncertainty and dealing with it. Um, by experience and using probabilities to think through these problems. And that I thought was a really interesting way to kind of convey that. So the chapter kind of goes through the history of insurance, but the really interesting stories to my mind are the one from the Maltese Falcon, this, this purse story, and then Wallace Stevens who kind of connects um, insurance to poetry in kind of this incredible way. Indeed. I agree. And I, I, in, in my world, there's also the language of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty and this is another way of kind of getting at that. Uh, you know, that's the, the common choice that we make in the investment world is uh, uh, trying to make those decisions. And uh, I thought the Dashiell Hammett story was uh, 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 and the Wallace Stevens story was uh, an excellent. I did not know that he worked at the Hartford. Uh, I've, I've, every time I will look at that company, I will keep that uh, keep that in mind. Well, I think your point about investing being about decision making under uncertainty I mean, at some very general level, a lot of life is that, right? And it is about, um, in a world of limited information and of uncertainty, how do you make decisions? And that is like the core of finance, you know, very much the core of finance. Indeed. Uh, and, and within that also, you know, sort of the within the framework of decision making under conditions of uncertainty is is risk management. Uh, and, you know, our lives are not controlled studies, uh, double blind studies. We just don't know. We have to make decisions who to marry and so forth. Colleges, uh, jobs, where to live uh, based on the best information that we have. You have a wonderful section on uh, risk management uh, through the concept of marriage in a literary context. And I am uh, just a, uh, an enormous Jane Austen fan, particularly Pride and Prejudice. And I have I consider myself very, very familiar with both the work and the kind of the secondary literature about it. But I, in my life, have never come across the phrase that Lizzie Bennet had hit the bid. Can you explain <laughs> what, that, what that means? That made me laugh out loud. Yeah, sure. No, so I think, um, 
you know, once you kind of uh, open up this world of uncertainty and insurance, of course, is one way of dealing with it, you know, which is pooling of risks. But much of finance is about how to deal with those kinds of risks more generally. And of course, options and diversification are two of the big ones. So, you know, again, rather than try to introduce this with uh, Black, Scholes, Merton, or whatever you want to think about doing, um, I go back to, you know, Jane Austen, and, and I use her because in many ways, her novels are um, fundamentally, you know, about risk management. And in particular, a number of her female heroines have a big risk management problem. Um, and, you know, Austen is clear about this when she uh, says young women cannot make mistakes. Young men can make mistakes, but it's very costly for young women to make mistakes. And of course, what she's getting at is this kind of the marriage market and how you kind of take these suitors. And, and in essence, Pride and Prejudice with Lizzie and a number of her other novels, you have these young women who, you know, suitors come along. Um, some of them are, uh, you know, uh, very uh, wealthy, but drunk. Some of them are nice, but ugly. And, you know, there's always this you know, these set of trade-offs. And, and of course, Mr. Collins's proposal to Lizzie is, I think, just fantastic because it really is an example of somebody trying to play off the risk aversion of um, his, his uh, for those of you not familiar with it, his proposal to uh, Lizzie is uh, one of the finest and most unromantic uh, statements, but it is a pure, almost finance uh, proposal of marriage. Right, right. It is, um, you know, in short, it is, you know, you're not um, you're not that pretty, you're not that wealthy. Um, so here's an offer on the table. I suggest you take it. <laughs> and of course, his and her mother says you should take it as well because of the riskiness of this market. Um, of course, Lizzie um, consults her father and then and says no, and then and goes on to roll the dice again, and, and of course, finally um, uh, finds Mr. Darcy, and and that is a fantastic ending to that story. The neat part of that is not just that there are these risk management problems, but in these novels, you'll hear these characters providing the intuitions behind these really important risk management tools like options and diversification. Um, so I use Anthony Trollope's, you know, Phineas Finn. Um, as an example of this wonderful uh, character, Violet Effingham, who basically gives voice to the logic of diversification um, and options when she's talking about which one of 10 suitors, you know, she should marry. Um, Let's stop on that just because, again, I think in the popular opinion, and particularly for many of the people who might be listening here, an option is, A, a, uh, not certain what it is, but they're pretty certain it's a it's bad. So let's, let's, let's stop, you know, uh, uh, back up just a little bit and, and explain for the general audience what uh, financial options are and then how you're applying that to uh, seeing them in literary characters. Sure. So um, a, a financial option is this kind of, uh, it is maligned in, in the general press, um, but it is a kind of remarkable financial instrument. It is the right to buy something or sell something as opposed to actually owning something. So you have the right to own it as opposed to actually owning it. And because it's just a right, it's kind of magical in that um, when things go your way, you can buy it at that predetermined price and benefit from it having gone up. But if in fact it went down, you didn't have to buy it because it's only a right. It's not an obligation to buy. And so an option is the right to do something in essence. And, um, you know, that turns out to be a powerful way to think about the world. In the Violet Effingham case, um, she talks about diversification by you know, basically saying, I wish I could all marry all 10 of the suitors, which of course is the essence of diversification. And then she outlines an option portfolio strategy, which is basically acquiring a bunch of these options and then, you know, deciding which one at some point um, when she's ready to, you know, hit the strike price as it were. Um, but optionality is such a pervasive way of thinking about the world for people in finance. And I'm, I'm sure you know this, which is 
um, you'll hear young people, I hear young people talking about optionality all the time, which is they want optionality in their life, which is they want more choices. Um, in fact, what I try to write about in the book, and I do this via um, Bartleby the Scrivener, as well as Seize the Day by Saul Bellow, that kind of thirst for optionality actually can end up being kind of corrosive. And this is what I see in young people today, which is they're so hungry for optionality in their life that what I actually observe happening to them is something quite sad, which is as young people, they get so obsessed with optionality and that can mean, you know, getting a degree to get it or getting, going to the right firm in order to create more options in the future or go to the right school to create more options in the future. They get so obsessed with that way of thinking about the world that they forget that um, the real lesson of options is you should take big risks and people who consume uh, options for their whole young part of their life only get good at one thing, which is buying more and more options. So it's a very kind of in a way, ironic way that people who love optionality and finance mislearn the most important lesson. Yeah, life is lived while you're making other plans. And if you're constantly just gaming the system rather than actually doing something, you've, you've lost out on, on time. Yeah, exactly. And so this is, I think this represented in some ways of the book generally, which is there's this idea, optionality, which is kind of brought forward in this literary vein, go through a little bit of the history. Um, you know, option contracts didn't show up in the 1960s or 70s or with the financial crisis. They've been going on for thousands of years. Um, and then talk about how that idea kind of refracts on your life in maybe a slightly more complex way, which is people think life is all about acquiring optionality. But in fact, that's a, both a misreading of the lesson in finance, but also not a terribly good way to live, um, where I see these young people who just get good at only one thing, which is buying more and more optionality. I think I heard just as a distraction or an outtake, I think I heard one of your terminal values in the background. Can you explain how <laughs> how one in a somewhat extreme fashion could refer to uh, your children as a as a terminal value? In a, and it's a wonderful way of, you know, how how, you know, you live for your children at a certain point. But explain that in finance terms, if you can. Yeah, sure. So I think um, indeed that was one of them. Um, so, you know, these uh, the terminal values are these really important devices in finance, which is whenever we value companies, um, you know, the first thing that many people outside of finance don't understand, although, you know, you and some of your listeners would understand, which is we only care about the future, right? So when you think about valuing a company, you don't look backwards, you look to the cash flows that they'll generate into the future. That's like one of the most important principles in finance. And it turns out that when we do these valuations, um, we often end up using these terminal values. So you kind of think about the next five or 10 years, and then there's this idea of a terminal value, which is where you capture all the future value after that date. And these terminal values turn out to be really quite important to like the overall value. So just to be specific, if you did Netflix and you're valuing Netflix, you know, they're not generating a ton of um, free cash flow right now, but in five years, the thought be is that it would, they will. And that terminal value, which captures all those future cash flows is where all the value of Netflix today comes. The reason that's a really compelling metaphor to me is because, um, first, I think, you know, the world does belong to the young and the future is what matters. And in fact, in, you know, my life and in many people's lives, terminal values, the things we leave behind, the things that really are the future, in, in my case, my children, for other people, maybe their children or their communities or who, however they perceive the world, um, is what really, really matters. So, that's the sense in which in finance, we look to the future, all value comes from the future. And in fact, terminal values are the most important thing in the world. That is true, I think, for many of us as well. And this, I think, is emblematic of another thing the book is tr 
trying to get to, which is these ideas in finance actually are really um, kind of life affirming and wonderful, right? So part of the way to rehabilitate finance is to get people in finance to understand these things they do are not just about spreadsheets and screens, but they're about actually moral lessons that are pretty wonderful. So there's moral content in the ideas of finance, as opposed to thinking they're just, you know. It can, it can be hard to appreciate that, unfortunately, with Squawk Box on and with assets repricing on a daily basis and with no cash flows from many of these investments. That is uh, no tangible way of measuring that that uh, terminal value or future value, kind of making it up with some numbers. So uh, the the daily repricing of assets in the in the stock market, at least not all assets are, are repriced, you know, private assets or not. But uh, I think at least I encounter in trying to apply a similar, not identical, but similar approach as you do in, in my day job is uh, the near-term noise can get in the way of, of, of long-term thinking. Uh, uh, again, when those assets reprice on a daily basis, the temptation is just to try to manage that, not to make, uh, not to really think about uh, real or not significant or not significant changes in, in the terminal values, the long-term trajectories. Yeah, no, I think as you, as you obviously know well, I mean, the great danger in the investing world is you get you know, you get lost in a Bloomberg screen and you know, you're watching flickering prices and that's just a, it's just a recipe for disaster. So what, what are the big issues? It's, it's really reflecting the first couple of chapters, but I think it's, uh, and you mentioned it once, uh, but I think it's worth uh, circling back and, and referencing it again is kind of not only modern portfolio theory, which is a particular topic of interest to me, but in modern finance in general, uh, the goal of, of diversification is as the key risk management and effectively return augmentation tool uh, is really central, whether it's MPT, modern portfolio theory, or just how people think about it, even if they're not aware that they're using MPT. Uh, diversification is this, as you characterize and others have as well, this this great uh, last free lunch in, in modern economics. Uh, you have a number of examples throughout the book, throughout all the chapters uh, of diversification at work and why it's so central to both academic and practical finance. But I think it's it's worth coming back to that if you can. Yeah, sure. And I think, again, this is like options, which is, you know, people think diversification is something that came out of the 1960s in modern portfolio theory. But um, it's first worth remembering that the basic intuition of diversification is deeply rooted in our in our brains and in our logic. And it's been operative for, you know, 3000 years. And so you can trace it back in history from shipping routes and the ways in which people would split up cargo uh, across shipping lines to, um, you know, these remarkable systems of um, agriculture uh, in early English history, where you would take different strips of land and you would make sure that you had strips of land that weren't next to each other, seemingly in a very uneconomic pattern, but you would be benefiting from the diversification of your exposure to different weather patterns. So diversification is just, it's not something novel. It's not even something that really belongs to finance. It's, it's really something, and this is, I guess, another big idea in the book, which is these ideas are rooted in our humanity. They're not, they're not just something that finance is imposing on us. These are basic intuitions. And of course, they show up in religious texts, you know, like Ecclesiastes and, and the Talmud. Um, and then, you know, that diversification ends up having these really neat, I think, you know, logics more generally, which is um, diversification about how you spend your time and how valuable that is, diversification about how you create a social circle and how valuable, you know, diversity can be. My favorite part, and I think the part that's really weird in the book is, is about the betas, you know, which is, I think, the biggest stretch in the book in a way is about 
um, trying to get the capital asset pricing model intuition um, through kind of some notion of friendships. And, you know, in short, the, the implication of diversification is that risk is priced with um, with betas, which are not measures of volatility per se as standalone assets, but as correlations with how you move with the market. And so that basic intuition, which is that high beta stocks, you know, co-move with the market strongly, should have high expected returns and as a consequence, low values. And negative beta stocks, for example, um, move against the market and correspondingly should have um, very low expected returns and as a consequence, very high values. That intuition of high beta assets being less valuable and negative beta assets being the most valuable assets in the world, you know, I try to argue translates really nicely to how you think about the relationships in your life that matter. And so here again is an example where the finance logic is actually quite life affirming and kind of wonderful, which is high beta assets can be great. And you will have friends who are high beta assets, you know, like your LinkedIn network or instrumental friendships that you have. They can be the source of great wealth, but don't get confused. They're not the most valuable assets in the world because when you're down on your knees, uh, those people won't be there for you. Uh, and conversely, the really, really wonderful valuable assets in the world are the, um, the negative expected return assets and the negative beta assets, which is those are the people who are there for you when you're down on your knees. They're the ones who pull you down when you fly too high. They may not be the flashiest people in the world, but they're not the flashiest people in the world. And in some sense, you know, they, they really, that notion of negative covariance of, you know, not just that they're there for you when you're down on your knees, but also that when you ride high, they kind of remind you of how to keep your feet on the ground. Um, that of course is the most valuable people in our lives. And we're lucky to have uh, those negative beta assets in our life. And that's kind of the logic of finance too, which is, and this goes back, I think, Daniel, to the first point, which is one of the wonderful things about writing this book is I had to think hard about these ideas again. And it made me remember how important insurance is, you know, because at the bottom of the capital asset pricing model is the logic of insurance. You know, when you're down on your knees, um, you need assets to pay off because marginal utility of wealth to be technical is high. And that's why you love those assets, right? And that's what gives rise to beta. And that's what the capital asset pricing model is all about. So that's the sense in which insurance is just so, so crucial to modern finance. And, you know, and I think is a powerful frame on, on our own lives. Well, one thing, sort of a footnote on the CAPM, the capital asset pricing model for those who are in, in finance. This is a paradigm that uh, emerged as a practical way to uh, apply uh, modern portfolio theory, which is created in the 50s, but not in a practical way. And then CAPM emerges in the 60s as a reasonably uh, practical way to uh, bring some of these uh, concepts of risk and return and a, a spectrum of risk and return and diversification to play. The CAPM itself, though, as a very simple formula, has not fared well the last couple of decades. And it, it, it's a very nice metaphor for how you're using it. It is somewhat falling into dissuade, I would argue, even though people use uh, beta uh, in the shorthand fashion that you are all the time as a, a susceptibility to market movements. The CAPM itself is, uh, uh, with all due respect to the Nobel Prize winning uh, authors of it is um, 50 years old and kind of uh, uh, showing it. Uh, but uh, I think if if it survives, it might well survive in, in the format that you have, which shows that, uh, you know, all uh, flash and boom is, is one thing, but uh, uh, those, whether people or investments, those securities may not be around uh, five or 10 years from now. It's also hard in the current environment where we've had 10 years of a, of a bull market, people can confuse 
uh, all of those high beta investments and assume everything's going to be fine because they've been fine for 10 years. We'll see whether that's still the case <laughs> another 10 years out or whether the, the con eds of this world uh, make a, which is a negative beta investment to pretty much any portfolio, um, whether they uh, become more appreciated than they have been uh, the past 10 years. You know, it's interesting. The disrepute of the CAPM that you point out, which of course is right, um, it's a really fascinating time in finance, right? Because people are um, discontent with that paradigm. They still use it all the time. Yes, <laughs> anyway. absolutely. Every day. Even they, even the ones when they're saying they're not going to use it will turn around and say, hey, what's your beta? Even when, they, even when they're saying how terrible it is, they're using it, right, in some basic way. But, you know, I do worry that these things that are um, competing to replace it, whether it is some multi-factor model or like, you know, some behavioral thing, you know, they're, they're fine, but they're quite atheoretic, you know, and they don't really have any underlying idea behind it. <laughs> and so it's a really interesting time in finance because people want solutions, but um, they seem to be very willing to kind of give up on some idea of what is really driving prices just to as long as they can fit the data. Yeah, it is. It is a. Uh, I, I think if, I, I forget whether it was uh, Fama or French uh, saying it's uh, in regard to the CAPM a, a sweeping and tour de force theory. I think it's uh, Eugene Fama. A tour de force theoretical tour de force doesn't happen to work, but it is a, a theoretical tour de force, and it'll probably live on, as you point out, until uh, not only a practical solution comes, but a, uh, a equally elegant. And it is awfully elegant, uh, an equally elegant uh, theoretical solution. Let's let's move on to another issue, if we can. Let's, feel free to continue on that. But one other thing that I wanted to get to, uh, which is a completely different uh, issue, which you you take up uh, nicely and is is not keeping me up at night, but I think a great deal about it in based on my job as an institutional investor, is uh, the principal and agent problem of the modern corporation and investing uh, in modern large-scale corporations through the boards of directors and then the higher, what I refer to as the hired help, uh, the CEOs and so forth. You have a wonderful story involving a Tootsie Roll that shows how complex agency problems are in modern finance. Uh, and I, I think that's uh, something that people really need to appreciate when they're investing uh, and, uh, you know, understand what it means to be a company owner, but a company owner in a modern sense, which means you own a few shares of a large corporation and you, you sort of have a voice, but you really don't have a voice uh, and uh, how the stock market is organized around that. Yeah, no, I, I really come to believe that this um, underlying principal agent problem, which is, you know, the finance talk for this idea that there are people who are ultimate owners, um, and then they appoint other people to kind of do the work for them, um, which is what happens when you're building a house or when you go to the doctor, or when you go to a lot of different settings. I've, I've really come to believe that that is kind of the defining problem of modern capitalism. And it's what we're struggling with in so many ways, um, which is just a way of saying 150 years ago, most of us had the privilege of working for ourselves. And that's not you know, the case today in the sense that ownership and control are separated. And that, of course, started with the observations of Burley and Means 100 years ago, but it's really magnified today. So, um, you know, if, if you think about uh, Tim Cook, he's my agent as an owner of Apple, but 
you know, he doesn't always take my calls. And so um, that's the principal agent problem. And in fact, I can't monitor him and he may do things that I don't like. And I can't quite tell uh, whether he's doing the right thing or not. Of course, it's even more complicated because there are institutional investors who sit between me and Tim Cook. Um, sometimes layers of them, if you think about uh, funds of funds and pension funds and the whole system of intermediation. The reason that's neat and interesting is because, first off, it just is a way to understand modern capitalism, but it's also, I think, a way to think about your life. So the Tootsie Roll example is nice because um, it's an example of um, a CEO who um, was somewhat you know, maligned for not taking, um, taking into account all the interests of their shareholders. And in fact, it was run a little bit more like a family business, in part because the family had a large stake. And when he passed, um, the stock price went up. At the age of 95, let us, after 50 years of running the company. Exactly. And the stock price went up considerably. And, and in fact, this is a phenomenon which, you know, we observe with some regularity, which is, and by the way, it's like a relatively unexpected death. Um, and what we see with some of these unexpected deaths in finance is that stock prices rise. And, and that's puzzling to people. But it really underscores what the principal Asian problem is, which is, wait a second, I put this person in charge of the company, but now he or she's not doing necessarily what I want. Um, but it's always quite complex as the Tootsie Roll story is complex. You know, the first time I tell it, he's kind of a bad guy and he's not really doing right by the shareholders. You know, the second time you look a little more deeply into it, it's not clear um, if he's a bad guy or not. And in fact, he's trying to balance the interests of the family and the community and doing a lot of different things. So the principal agent problem is both this like very powerful frame on modern capitalism um, but it doesn't yield simple answers, right? It's not like he's a good guy or a bad guy, or the institutional investors are good guys or bad guys. It's just a really powerful frame to understand that. And, and I argue in that chapter, you know, really powerful frame to think about the world more generally. And, and I think many of us find ourselves in settings where, you know, we've delegated something to an agent or we find ourselves functioning as agents without even knowing it. Yeah, the simplest, you know, simple version of this is do you own, do your own brain surgery or your own dentistry or do you have someone else do it? And then when you have someone else do it, you acknowledge that, well, if they're doing it, you know, you've lost some control. Uh, that's kind of at a, a throwaway level or, a, you know, funny anecdote level. But uh, there's a whole rich uh, academic and practical literature on the implications of agency costs uh, in complex organizations, which is to say large American or modern corporations, and you invest in them, that it's, uh, there's, it, it's not just a throwaway joke. It's, it's a very serious part of, as you point out, it's kind of critical to modern large scale business. Yeah. And even, you know, even, I mean, think about what venture capital is and think about what private equity is and think about what public markets are. Fundamentally, they're trying to figure out the principal agent problem, right? So in venture capital land, you know, why do you see convertible preferreds? You know, why do you see um, staged financings? You know, private equity in part is a solution to kind of dispersed ownership by having one big owner, but then they run into their own problems because they have to exit into public markets. And, and guess what they're going to do to those companies as they sell them out? Um, they're going to make them look, you know, very, very good. Um, and so it's everywhere, you know, and in a way, you know, Daniel, I've come to believe these last 30 or 40 years, you know, what has the big experiment been? It's been with stock-based compensation. And what has that been about? Well, that was motivated by a notion that we're going to solve the principal agent problem, which is owners worrying that managers don't take into account their own interests by loading people up with stock. Now, I, I personally don't think that that's worked out terribly well, um, but it's, it's, it's the defining kind of struggle. 
And it doesn't mean managers are bad or investors are good or anything like that. It just means it's kind of like the hardest problem in the world. I think that there's also a, a kind of an argument to be made that it rises and falls. There's the degree to which we trust the board of directors or the managers goes through cycles. And after particularly bad periods, uh, p- periods of bad uh, behavior, then the uh, calls for greater control uh, can be heard. And when things are working just fine, we'll just let Jeff Bezos be Jeff Bezos and he can do whatever he wants. As a historian, I would harken back. You did, made a passing reference to, but I want to call it out to uh, uh, Burl and Means. This whole issue identified, though they, I don't even think they use these terms, but uh, they created this whole conversation in 1932. This is Adolf Burl and Gardner Means, for those of you with a historical bent, uh, came out in 1932 with a book on the modern corporation. And it really was the beginning, if you think about the emergence of modern finance, uh, understanding of modern stock markets, this was the first kind of uh, comprehensive account of what a modern corporation is like. And they spend a great deal on uh, of time on this understanding that you have an agency problem, even if you don't uh, use that term, because you are a small shareholder for a large corporation, which is controlled by, at that time, the high priests of finance or business, but now it would be considered institutional investors. And your voice is somewhat small, and it can leave the board of directors and the CEOs to have a uh, rather imperial or uh, heightened view of their abilities and take uh, the view of the small investor uh, with little regard. So, you know, it's been a hundred, literally coming up on a hundred year problem, but it's worth going back to the very beginning. They were writing in the, in the shadow of the, uh, of the stock market crash in 1929. And in the 1920s and in the kind of wild West period in the decades before modern corporate behavior was, demonstrably pretty bad. And so they had something to uh, to write about. It's interesting to reread Burl and Means uh, 90 years later uh, and wonder <laughs> how much has changed. Well, no, I think that work stands up incredibly well, right? <laughs> I mean, that book stands up incredibly well. And in fact, you know, the way you framed it, I think is right. I, I recently, I guess last year now, I, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about Apple and Google. And I just tried to make the point that in a way, you know, Apple and Google are, What's interesting about that comparison in part is, you know, Apple has just become a cash distribution monster, right? So they've, they've disgorged, you know, $200 billion or, or more by dividends and buybacks in the last several years. Google, in contrast, has not um, while generating comparable levels of cash. And the reason, of course, is that um, the three people who own and control Google have voting rights and far in excess of what institutional investors do. So there are two very different takes on the principal agent problem and which principal agent problem is worse, right? So in one sense, if you believe that the real problem is, you know, managers who don't listen to owners, then you like Apple because Apple's disgorging the cash to the owner's benefit. If instead you believe the real problem in life is institutional investors who aren't, who are responding to short horizons and who aren't doing well by their ultimate shareholders, then you kind of think the Google model the Google model might be better. So I think that principal agent frame to me is, it's just explained so much of what's happening in the world today. And it's the same, uh, it, it's not covered in your book or in, in, in my writings on this issue, but uh, the degree of government regulation is sort of a, a, a corollary to this. When you think that, uh, you know, these uh, individuals, the directors and the CEOs are going to behave less well, you might be on the side of greater regulation. If you think that, you know, they're, you choose right pe- good people and you let them do their jobs, then you would want less government regulation. And that's also kind of this parallel parallel narrative to uh, the the uh, principal agent problem, at least in, in, in the United States and Europe at the present time. 
Yeah, no, I, I really, and I think then, you know, what I try to do in the chapter is then just try to take it into your life, which I think is actually, you know, the, that chapter is probably the chapter in the book that is the weirdest because it goes all the way from like, you know, Tim Cook and uh, corporate governance all the way to, you know, Mel, Bro- Mel Brooks and Sigmund Freud. But that principal agent frame, I think is it's a lot of what life is like trying to figure out when you're a principal, how to become a principal as opposed to, you know, functioning as an agent, um, which is a way of saying, you know, not functioning to kind of please other people. So we could go on for hours about that topic. Let's let's move on a couple more. Let's move on to romance, uh, which was explained very succinctly by Charlie Parker and Tiny Grimes, that uh, you need some finance to make romance work real well. And you circle back to the marriage market, but then very interestingly to a corporate M&A and make a a kind of a very non-finance, but really interesting uh, notion that, you know, uh, some of these marriages – uh, you, you, whether it's a corporate or a personal one, you, you have to do the numbers, but also there's something beyond the numbers that, you know, you want to make sure it works well, uh, that the yeah. partners are in sync. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is, um, maybe the cheekiest uh, chapter, which is just a way of saying it's titled no romance without finance. And it's meant to kind of take these two worlds, you know, which people tend to take apart and think separately about, which is the world of love and romance, which is wonderful and high minded and lovely and, and things like, uh, finance, which is dirty and grungy or something. And in fact, of course, these worlds have been intertwined for, again, centuries. So I kind of talk about marriage market, you know, a little bit about Renaissance Florence, but then up until, you know, recently and continuing to today, marriages have, you know, deep financial logics. And we observe that in the data in all kinds of ways. The more, I think, interesting one is about the mergers, which is a way of saying, we actually know a lot about mergers um, and as you know well, it's a pretty checkered. Uh, it's a ch- pretty checkered history. The bigger the bigger they are, the generally the less successful they are. That's from my my That's one initial take. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know what the, the chapter tries to do is say, well, look, look, let's take a look at what we know about mergers and think about how actually it corresponds really well to the folklore around marriages and what guides successful marriages. I use the AOL Time Warner. It's a slightly dated example because it's probably now 20 years old, Um, but it's this classic, you know, romance merger that just went horribly wrong. I can still remember the uh, probably on television, the the scene of uh, uh, the two CEOs coming out, uh, Case and I'm trying to remember his uh, uh, and he's trying to dress down. One of the uh, Levin was trying to dress down, and Case was trying to dress up because they were they were two on the stage when they're explaining this, and they looked awfully awkward together. Yeah, and it was a real kind of shotgun romance, right? Or shotgun marriage, and um, and of course that that particular merger uh, manifests a lot of things that we know goes wrong with mergers, and I think with marriages. And you know, a couple of those examples are. Um, you know, synergies are always overestimated, um, which in merger land, you and I know as people in finance just means, you know, people have these fantastic uh, ideas about the way they're going to be able to change organizations and change their partners very, very quickly and costlessly and painlessly. And that, of course, never turns out to be right, um, which I think, of course, has a corresponding language and uh, corresponding logic in, in marriage as well. Um, nobody really thinks about integration costs. Uh, you know, serial acquirers uh, tend to do really poorly. Um, you know, asymmetric mergers are easy, but not that rewarding. Um, mergers of equals are really, really tough, but where a lot of value comes from. And so there's a, and then the final, maybe most important one is, you know, the, 
real intuition around mergers, of course, is that execution is everything. And it's just a ton of hard work, uh, which can trump a lot of other things. And, and of course, I think that applies to marriages as well. So that, and that chapter, and it ends with this really crazy Firestone story, which, um, you know, it's like one of those stories in American business history that you can't quite believe, you know, happened in the way it did. Um, but uh, is also as a way to kind of bring together these worlds of mergers and, and marriages. But you do end up with a, a successful one. I think the body by Fisher you view as a, a successful merger. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, that, and this kind of goes all the way to kind of modern economic theory about, you know, how we think about um, what two entities belong together and how we should draw, you know, what's technically called the boundaries of the firm. Like when, when do two entities belong together and when should they be apart and just contracting with each other? Um, and Fisher Bodies, this just this great example. Um, it's kind of like this story in economics, which has become a Rorschach test. You know, like you see everything you can possibly see in economics in that test. And the short version is GM ends up buying Fisher Body slowly, first makes an investment and then ends up buying the whole thing because they needed Fisher Body to make really specific investments that were conditional on the relationship with GM. And the only way to encourage that investment by Fisher Body was, in fact, to kind of up their commitment levels. And so there's this really nice tie between, um, you know, the notion of commitment and these relationship-specific investments, which is what that whole modern notion of the theory of the firm is about. And I think, and I think, you know, marriages as well. You know, Boeing had went through a stage where they tried to. Uh... Uh, the last couple decades uh, outsource a lot of the production and design uh, of their aircrafts, particularly when they're trying to design, uh, you know, entirely new aircraft like the uh, in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, the 777 and then the 787 more recently. And they found all sorts of problems with that. And so they had to then uh, they had to uh, bring in those companies. Uh, they had to bring those companies in. And, uh, you know, buy them up and uh, bring them back into house because they could not, uh, you know, those companies were not producing products sufficient for their, uh, their needs. Yeah. And they would never make the investments necessary to produce those things without a much greater commitment, you know, either some multi-year contract, but ultimately ownership. Indeed. Let's let's move on to another topic. Great, uh, you know, also kind of a dirty word. Uh, loved on Wall Street, if it were fully understood uh, on Main Street the way it is, uh, and sometimes used on uh, on Wall Street, which is leverage, which is taking on debt. Um, it it wouldn't be very well received. You you have a really quite a different take on leverage, uh, uh, putting it as part of the. Uh, normal risk and return on the spectrum of risk and return that people need to have some leverage in order to almost achieve great things. Uh, and yeah. I, I found it an interesting, uh, very interesting chapter. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you know, so funny because talking about debt today is such a minefield, right? Because people have some very strong views about it. And, and of course, there are two great misconceptions about debt and leverage. And the, and the first misconception is that it's terrible, that, you know, debt and leverage of all kinds is bad. Um, and then the second misconception about it is once you take it on, it, it doesn't matter how much you take on, you just, <laughs> it's all fun and games. And so I worry about both misconceptions because people have become so anti-debt today that they, they forget how uh, wonderful it can be. And I, and I use the debate between Jeremy Bentham and Adam Smith, you know, Smith, the guy who got a lot of things right, you know, got debt wrong because he thought it was bad. Um, Bentham realized that debt and leverage and credit were so important because 
they allowed people who didn't have resources to do things. And if you don't have leverage and debt, um, the only people who get to do things are wealthy people. Yeah, the whole the whole middle class experiment in uh, home ownership in this country is based on a mortgage, and that's a distinctive element in our society's success. And and it's been fantastic, uh, except when it went to excessive levels, right? And so part of that story is about why people on Wall Street love leverage. And I think the short version is because it gives you the ability to do things you have, would have no way to do otherwise. You get to live in a home you have no right to live in. You get to buy an education you have no right to buy. Um, you get to control assets you have no right to control. And that's amazing. Um, I make a parallel to that in life, you know, which is I think um, it is fundamentally about how commitments to people, to uh, families, to organizations, to people in your life, actually opens up experiences that you would never have had otherwise. And that is the nature of, of leverage in life. And I think that's enormously powerful. And similarly, when you um, go overboard, um, in the case of bankruptcy or debt overhang, you know, when debt becomes such a paralyzing part of your life, which of course is happening to Americans today, um, then you can make a lot of mistakes. Um, and that is the terrible part about debt overhang. You stop investing in the things that are actually really good investments for you to make because you have the shadow of debt over you. And that's when restructuring your obligations becomes really, really important. And I think that has gotten an analog in life too, which is um, sometimes all these pre-existing commitments that we've made stop us from being able to kind of think about what the future should hold. And, and you need to restructure your claims at those times. So that's the, that's the sense in which I try to use leverage to kind of elucidate both why it is really wonderful. And also first, why it's not for everybody. And then also what you do when you get in trouble with it. Um, the Coons, uh, I, I do a little bit on Jeff Coons and George Orwell. Cause I, I really loved the Coons example, uh, to manifest somebody who knows leverage, you know, Coons is, you know, a lot of people, he's a very controversial artist, but I think he's one of the great artists of the last hundred years. This is a guy who grew up in finance and man, does he understand leverage? Like, you know, his whole career is predicated on leverage. Um, he was a cotton futures trader and he, um, you know, he uses leverage in many ways. First, he, he basically gets paid for his work before he does it. He has like 150 people working for him. He doesn't even really know how to use the material he ends up using. He just understands that he needs good people to do it. And then he designs it. Um, this is a highly levered guy. And, you know, unsurprisingly, he's gone bankrupt several times and he's bankrupt to dealers all the time. Um, but he's pretty fantastic. And, you know, he's got a, he's kind of, at least according to the Whitney Museum, the greatest American artist, uh, living American artist today. So it's kind of this really great story of a high leverage guy who risks it all and he fails and he goes bankrupt a couple of times and then he hits it big as well, which is exactly, of course, the story of leverage in American life as well. So speaking kind of, uh, the quintessential American prairie tune, a prairie story and so forth. You've got, uh, you end your book on a high note, also a success story, uh, not uh, without necessarily all of the ups and downs of Jeff Koons, but a story about Willa Cather, which I think is really an interesting uh, take on um, trying to end on a high note where finance, you can see finance in everyday life of people using finance to have successful, satisfied uh, meaningful lives. And it's a, it's a wonderful story. I think we should, we could end on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the last chapter, you know, tries to solve this problem, which is, I just kind of went through eight or nine chapters telling you how great finance is and it's got a terrible reputation. And in fact, in fiction, it's got this really harsh reputation. Um, 
But there's this great example in fiction of a wonderful person who understands finance, uses it, and lives this incredibly virtuous life. And, and that's this woman, Alexandra Bergson in, in O Pioneers, who, you know, she really, this story really literally belongs like in every finance textbook because she exemplifies all the lessons of finance we've just been talking about. So um, she manages risk by diversifying. She provides insurance to people. Her. She merges. She uses leverage. Um it's really kind of a fantastic embodiment of all the things in finance. The great news about it, though, is unlike other literary figures who work in finance, um, who almost always turn out to be Shkreli-like characters, you know, kind of ugly, um, arrogant, um, avaricious people, Bergson is, turns out to be this wonderful woman, and she's incredibly successful, um, but she kind of and I think the best part about it is she understood the central lesson of finance, which so many practitioners uh, forget, you know, which is that a lot of finance is luck, right? And, and the, the central intuition um, of efficient markets and anything approximating efficient markets is it's really hard to tell the difference between luck and skill. And in fact, we should probably presume that a lot of success is luck rather than skill. And Bergson kind of gets this idea. And as a result, you know, she doesn't turn into a jerk despite her success. In part, what I observe in the world, at least, is there are people in finance who, because of the leverage and because of the speed with which wealth is is created and destroyed, who kind of over amplify their own impact on their success. And it's for good reason, because you got to make sense of your success. And, you know, the easiest way to do that is to attribute it to yourself. Um, but Bergson's a cautionary tale about how, how powerful it can be to remember that in finance, it's really hard to tell the difference between luck and skill. Mm-hmm. And over the long run, maybe we know who's really lucky and who's really skillful, but you don't know until uh, you know, 30 or 40 years into the game. Indeed. Well, uh, that's uh, uh, an excellent way to, uh, to, to finish up. Uh, Professor Desai, thank you so much for, for sharing with us sort of the nuggets from the, the wisdom of finance, discovering uh, humanity in the world of risk and, and return. Uh, it is, uh, as I uh, said in the introduction, an excellent uh, bridging of the gap between two worlds that need to understand each other better. There's a lot of that in the world these days of, of effort to uh, need to understand each other better. Uh, can you also comment on, on your next project, uh, which uh, people might be of in- interested in? Sure. Um, so I have a book actually coming out in March with um, HBR Press called How Finance Works, which is uh, a kind of more traditionally uh, pedagogic book. Um, which I'm really excited about. I'll mention just two other quick things. Um, we recently launched a podcast of our own, which is really fun. It's called After Hours. So myself and two colleagues at HBS uh, do a talk on what's going on in business and society. And then the new book, Daniel, I'd love to talk to you about at some point, which is it's about um, the rise of investors. And that's what I'm working on now. So uh, I'd love to maybe, maybe I can bend your ear about it at some point. In, indeed. In the meantime, both The Wisdom of Finance is uh, available through normal book channels, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and so forth. And uh, How Finance Works, uh, the HBR Guide, is also available for pre-order uh, through those same channels. Uh, Professor Desai, thank you so much for, for sharing uh, your time and insights with us. My pleasure. It was really fun to talk to you. Take care.